There's um, an old story about a man who came to his pastor for help because he was considering a divorce. The minister counseled him to stay in the marriage and began to show him scriptures which spoke to the issue of marital commitment. He first pointed to Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. When the guy just said, well, I don't love her. The pastor turned to John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If they were both Christians, he argued, they should at least be able to love each other as fellow believers. But the husband was having none of it. We fight all the time, he said. The longer I stay with her, the less I like her. But yet the pastor was not about to give up. So he flipped over to Matthew 22:39, part of today's reading. Love your neighbor as yourself. Will you at least try loving her as your next day neighbor? But pastor, he said, you don't understand. We're not even friends anymore. It was only then that the minister's face finally lit up with relief. Well, then I've got just the verse you need, he said, triumphantly reading from Matthew 5, verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But joking aside, Divorce relationship problems are not really a joking matter. And they're an all too frequent problem in church and out. And relationship issues, of course, extend well beyond marriage. And part of the problem, I suspect, is that people can have such unrealistic ideas about what love really means in the first place. If I were to ask you the meaning of love this morning, how do you think you'd reply? There are so many different possibilities out there that it can be difficult to know where to start. When the Institute of Human Thermodynamics, and believe it or not, there is such a body, conducted a survey of how people defined love in 2004, they found that, and I quote, The answers to garnish the most votes, i.e. the top six definitions, held the following five key words. Life, care, friendship, union, and family. But the top 50 also revealed a huge range of priorities. Some of the most common were explicitly sexual, which surely says something about how much Love can be confused with lust in our media age. Many focus on couples where we often find the most intimate relationships. But if there was one overriding theme that I found especially striking, it was the common emphasis on feelings, on emotions, as opposed to, say, real commitment and loving action. Let me cite a few examples. Some of the more emotional definitions of love were quite formal. Sincere loyalty, affection and care, for example, or undying devotion, or mutual passion and understanding. But others 
could have come almost straight out of a romance novel, like a powerful internal feeling or a tender passionate affection or something that makes you ache from deep within. Perhaps the most basic of all was warm fuzzies. <laughs> Love is warm fuzzies. And we find a similarly sentimental approach, of course, in so many other ideas of love. Pick up a bestseller, tune into a TV drama, and you'll often see love reduced to romantic passion. But we all know that true love goes much deeper than that. Listen to some of the, the self-help teachers or even more respected opinion leaders, and you'll frequently hear that love amounts to little more than allowing everyone to do their own thing. But surely, if you really care about someone, you'll want to see them do what's right, not just what's most attractive or convenient for them. And in the church, we can struggle with these issues as much as anywhere else. Our ultimate role model is Jesus himself, but we don't always agree, do we, on how to answer the question, what would Jesus do? That's why a Bible reading like today's from Matthew 22 becomes so crucial for me, for here we find Jesus himself teaching us a vital lesson about the true meaning of love in his great twofold commandment of love. We need to be careful about citing scripture, especially when we do so out of context. There's a story about two friends who met after many years. One had become a wealthy and very successful executive, the other hadn't. In fact, his big business was in bankruptcy. Curious as to how this had come about, the struggling businessman asked his friend the secret of his success. Well, one day, I opened my Bible at random, he said. I dropped my finger on a page. The word I found was oil. So I invested in oil, and boy, did the oil wells gush. Now I tried the same again, and this time, the word was gold. So I invested in gold, and those mines really produced. Now I'm as rich as Rockefeller. May tell you how old that joke is. When he heard of his friend's good fortune, the guy in bankruptcy gave a long sigh before he finally told his own story. I also sought biblical guidance for my future. He said, like you, I flipped open my Bible one day and dropped my finger on a page. So what did you find? asked his friend. Just two words, he said. Chapter 11. I didn't have much confidence after that. Now there's no telling what we'll find, of course, if we treat the Bible like a fortune cookie. And it's never wise to do so. A text without a context can so often be a pretext, to quote one of my favorite Baptist preachers, David Pawson. 
But thankfully, the context of today's reading, which is quite clear, leaves it less open to abuse than most. Jesus is in Jerusalem in the last week before his death and resurrection in Matthew 22, and he's been addressing the crowds and fielding questions from Jewish religious leaders. He's just been responding to members of the Sadducees who denied the possibility of physical resurrection from the dead and tried to ask him a deliberately challenging question on this topic. Then another group, the Pharisees, take their own turn at basically putting Jesus on the spot. We so often tend to dismiss the Pharisees, don't we? But it's important to remember that they were highly respected leaders in Jesus' day. The Apostle Paul himself was educated as one, and he later portrays that as an important part of his life story. So when Jesus faces their questions or challenges, or especially when he speaks out against them, as he frequently does in the Gospels, he's not on easy ground. In fact, when one of them who's described as an expert in the law, in verse 35, asks him a question, our text informs us that he does so quite specifically to test him. To test him. They want to put Jesus on the spot. Teacher, he says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, in asking this, the Pharisees obviously seeking Jesus' opinion on the Old Testament, which was the law, or Torah, to use the Hebrew word for contemporary Jews, especially, of course, its first five books. But because legal questions were so widely debated in Pharisaic circles, he's also opening up a potential minefield of conflicting viewpoints. So how does Jesus respond? Well, the first point to stress is his obvious concern for biblical authority, which shapes our whole passage. Jesus doesn't quote someone's personal views. He doesn't suggest a public opinion poll or a panel of experts, as many might today. Instead, he provides us with a crucial working model of going straight to Scripture seeking decisive truth and guidance for life right there in God's Word. The words of verses 37 through 40 are widely known and often quoted in Christian circles. In Anglican liturgy, which I must confess I led pretty much every week until mid-April, there's a version said at every traditional communion service. But I wonder if you've noticed that these words are also taken directly from the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind is adapted from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. And love your neighbor as yourself comes from what we might sometimes think an unlikely place, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So Jesus goes right to the heart of Judeo-Christian morality when he states its two most important principles. He doesn't reject Old Testament moral law. He summarizes it. And he draws straight 
from the Bible itself. So Jesus' reply to the Pharisees who are questioning tells us something very important, surely, about what should be our ultimate source of authority in the Christian life, the Bible. And we need to bear that in mind when we consider the terms of his double commandment in more detail. The New Testament is very consistent, I think, that while Old Testament civil and ritual purity laws remain valuable, they need no longer be binding on the church. But the ethical universals of the Hebrew Scriptures still hold true. So Jesus' teaching can be seen as a summary of the Ten Commandments, in which he underlines the importance of that ethical tradition. So what kind of love then do verses 37 through 39 still hold up as an ideal for us? Being a loving person, Jesus says, means basically loving God with all the resources at our disposal and loving our neighbours as ourselves. What is more, the the key Greek verb that is used in verses 37 and 39 describes this love more precisely. One of the biggest movies of my teenage years and I'm giving my age away a bit here, was the tearjerker love story. Anyone remember that one? Starring Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. And one of its most famous lines, which has always stayed with me for some strange reason, is, love means never having to say you're sorry. But I've since learned that that's nonsense, of course. Because... Being willing to admit your mistakes lies right at the heart of any successful relationship, not never having to say you're sorry. And the same could be said of so many other ideas of love that we come across in the modern media, including a lot of those rather cute-looking Love Is cartoons that were all over the place at one time. Because the kind of love that Jesus has in mind is so different. His command to love doesn't refer to romantic or erotic love, although they can be of great value in the right biblical setting, of course. It goes far beyond friendship or mutual concern, although they always have their place. Instead, it involves the constant, steady, covenant and totally unconditional Agape love, that's the actual Greek word, agape, which God shows to his people. That's the kind of love that we're expected to show towards God and our neighbours. It's a love that plays for keeps and a love that perseveres. And the Greek word for neighbour tells us even more. It literally means one who is near. And its application was generally limited to members of the same people or religious community. In other words, in that time and place, to fellow Jews. So neighbour love on that understanding was restricted to one's own. It was kind of an in-house affair. But we know, don't we, from elsewhere in the New Testament, and especially from the parable of the Good Samaritan, that when Jesus talks about loving your neighbour, he includes 
everyone who comes our way. That's what love is ultimately all about for Jesus. It starts with God and it extends to everyone we meet. We quite literally owe God everything we have. We're called to love others as much as ourselves, whoever or wherever they may be. Jesus expects us to be and act in all our dealings in ways that show unconditional love. Nothing more, nothing less is required and it's a pretty tall order. The key question in terms of application of course is what all this means in our everyday lives. That's always the bottom line. So let me draw to a close with a few thoughts about that. Beginning with our relationships with those who are already close to us in church or elsewhere. If you are asked to list the seven greatest problems that a missionary faces, what would you suggest? I won't do a Q&A thing now, we might try that in a few months' time. Loneliness, perhaps, or financial pressures? Marriage difficulties or family issues? Managing stress? Adjusting to different cultures? Well, Cedric Johnson and David Penner once surveyed 55 North American Protestant mission agencies with more than 100 staff members overseas. And do you know what they found? All the issues that I've already mentioned did indeed feature in their research results. But the number one problem that most said they faced was a very sad one. It was relationships with other missionaries. Relationships with other missionaries. And that can be sadly true in many Christian settings. It sometimes seems that the devil focuses his greatest attention on destroying or trying to undermine our relationships. He knows their great value as much as we do. So he tries to distance people from God and from one another. But God calls us to love one another as ourselves in church and out, through good and bad, and through all the ups and downs of life. We all know examples of what happens when relationships fall apart in churches, but things don't have to be that way if we consistently treat others as we would have them treat us. Last but not least, of course, Matthew 22 calls us to think equally long and hard about our dealings with those outside the church. It's often struck me that when Jesus takes people to task in the New Testament, he tends to have more to say to those who consider themselves especially religious or virtuous people than to anyone else. And the leaders in our Gospel are a classic case in point. Nowadays, we tend to think of the Pharisees as so narrow and legalistic. as all too ready to follow the letter, but not the spirit of the Jewish law. But this is not how they would have been seen by all their contemporaries. I've already suggested that they were often classed among the most devoted Jewish leaders of their age. They may have been misguided, but they were very keen to do and uphold God's will 
They were seen as true believers, if you like, the orthodox of their day. And that surely gives us all pause for thought, because it raises the question of how much we are really living and not just talking about our faith. Even with those who are close to us, like family members or or fellow church members, it can be difficult enough to show the kind of love that Jesus is recommending here. But what about everyone else? Are we ready, as Jesus recommends, to learn from those whom we might normally reject? Are we willing to see good in those whom our society tends to exclude? We may be prepared to make sacrifices for the good of those near and dear to us, but how much will we reach out to those we know less well? We may have high ideals, but what about our means of pursuing them? Are we truly loving our neighbours as ourselves? These are tough questions. But when we get back to basics, Matthew 22 can challenge us all. The bottom line is how true are we being to Jesus' teaching? How much are we following his timeless example of perfect love in action? And let me leave you with one last thought, which is deliberately echoed in a few of today's hymns. 1 John 4 verse 19 perhaps puts it best of all, and yet so simply and so profoundly. We love... Because he, or because God, first loved us. We love because God first loved us. God's very nature is love. God's unconditional covenant love for God's people has been evident throughout history. God created our whole universe in love and now sustains it in love. God made us in God's image and when humanity fell from grace, God did not hesitate to send his only son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect expression and embodiment of love to save us. The love of Christ greets us on nearly every page of the New Testament and it continues by the power of the Holy Spirit today and every other day. Christ's love knows no boundaries and he has a special heart for the weak and the helpless for the otherwise unloved and the oppressed. Such is Christ's love for his church that Paul describes it as his bride as well as his body. And when Christ laid down his life on the cross, he did so as a gift of love, however costly, greater love hath no man than this, says the old King James Version of John 15 verse 13 that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. To show his love for us in the most powerful way possible to save us when he gave himself as a living sacrifice to pay the price for our sins so that all who come to him in repentance and faith might find salvation through the loving grace of God. So we love because God first loved us. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel. And it's as we're inspired, as we're empowered by God's love that Christ's great 
twofold commandment calls us all to love God with all we have and love our neighbours as ourselves. What a God! What a gospel! And what an amazing love and privilege for us all. Let's bow our heads.